Thanks, Nicole. You know, we're, we're working through the story of God saving his people from, a, from an oppressive and enslaving nation. Uh, and it's just, it's just incredible to me how similar it is to the situation in Ukraine with, with Russia. There, I read this morning that you know, Russia's finally been successful in capturing one of the major cities. And what they're seeing is thousands of Ukrainians being captured and they believe being subjected to forced labor, which is what Israel was subjected to by Egypt. And God's people in Ukraine are, are fighting against oppression by an enslaving regime. And we're not facing these trials, but this is a common fight. And, and the, the reality of a people... Uh, being freed from an enslaving and oppressive nation uh, is really a metaphor to what we, we all go through in terms of what enslaves us. So that's what we're going to look at today to see how this, this incredible story is really also a story of the fight that each of us have um, at various levels. So the 10th plague, so uh, the Passover God brought the plagues upon Egypt to a final place. The tenth plague was the angel of death was going to come through the, through the nation. And any, uh, any house that did not have the blood of a lamb on its doorframe, the firstborn of that house um, would, would die. All animals, all humanity, all human beings, the firstborn would die from the hand of the angel of death. And so after that plague, uh, Egypt and Pharaoh finally relented and released Israel uh, into, the, into the wilderness. So Israel leaves, and God then stops them. They're headed towards the Red Sea, and they get there, and, they, and God says, I want you to turn back. I want Pharaoh to think that you're confused. I want Pharaoh to think that you have no vision or plan or that I'm not leading you, and I want them to come after you. Now, it says that they were headed towards the Red Sea, but it's not necessarily where they ended up. They ended up essentially with their backs to water. The word for sea can mean lake, can mean sea. They're not necessarily at the Red Sea. They're in that general area. Now, thinking Israel is indeed confused and God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and that was the theme of a subject uh, of the sermon a couple weeks ago, uh, so we're not going to get into that extensively. Um, Pharaoh and Egypt changed their minds. Let's, what did we do? Releasing all of these, these workers, these slaves, we're going to go get them. So he took his entire army. It said the, 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 the uh, special 600 chariots, then all the rest of the chariots, and the whole army. And then upon seeing Egypt's army, so their backs are against the water, and in front of them they see Pharaoh's armies coming, and they says, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, they never said that. They were like, God save us from the Egyptians. Now, this is not the last time Israel will grumble, and we're going to spend the next two sermons on these grumblings. It's the beginning of a series of grumblings. 
Now, Moses reassured them. He said, listen, just wait. God will deliver you. You just need to wait and remain silent. Then the text says that God reprimanded Moses. Why are you crying out to me? Why are you crying out to me? Do this. Have them go forward. And so God gave him instructions to do with his staff. God moves around, so he's in a pillar of fire during the day, he's in a, no, excuse me, he's in a pillar of cloud by the day, a pillar of fire by night. So he moves his presence in between the armies of Egypt and the nation of Israel. Moses spreads his staff out over the water, and the text says that God brings in a wind from the east. And so this was early evening when it started, late afternoon, early evening, and then all through the night, these winds were blowing. Israel begins to move through once the waters are separated, after the the wind is blown long enough, and then Egypt follows. And what happens when Egypt begins to follow, so they're in in this, this seabed or massive lake bed, and God clogs their wheels up. So it's, it's thought that he let a little bit of water come back in and got, get the ground soggy, and so they clogged their wheels up. And for the first time in this entire story, Egypt says something. Not just Pharaoh, not his magicians, but it says the Egyptians. Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So finally, and it's, you know, it says the Lord, it's, they recognized that it was Yahweh. They recognized that the force behind the, their, their, being, their wheels getting clogged, they recognized that the force behind all of the plagues, they recognized that the force behind defending Israel is the great I Am, the eternally existing God, the, the creator and sustainer of all things. That's what they said. It is the great I Am. We've got to get out of here. And remember, that's, what, that's one of the purposes that God said. I want the Egyptians to know who I am. Moses then raises his staff again, and the entire army is drowned. It says, every last one. God had saved Israel. Israel was reborn. So they went through the waters, just like baptism. They went through the waters. And the text says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. So remember that Israel would know who I am, that Egypt would know who I am. Those were stated purposes behind all of these, these plagues and these supernatural events. And so this is a story, we're very familiar with it. I forgot there was a, a few years ago, Christian Bale was in a movie, I think it's called Gods and Kings, uh, and it's a story of Moses and Pharaoh and this whole thing. Um, so a very familiar story, very familiar story, but there's three observations that I want to take from it. First of all, we know the story, and it's, it's incredible, um, but what if it's not true? <laughs> you know, it's, 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 this, is, this is Israel's foundational story, like, like Deirdre had in her sermon last week. This is a supernatural, amazing event. It cannot be reproduced. 
It can't be proven. But the text does have some things in it that help us identify what indeed was supernatural and what indeed was not. And I, and I think that by, by looking at this, we can begin to see that um, even though there are some supernatural elements to it, obviously, uh, there's also some reality in it that I think helps substantiate the veracity of the text. So the text says that, that God brought the winds from the east all night long. He didn't immediately just say, okay, water, stand up and clear a path for Israel. That's not what happened. He used nature to accomplish a purpose for him. Now, uh, Carl Drews is a, is a researcher at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, which is a highly respected you know, government research organization. And he did some research on whether or not this could actually be accomplished with wind. Can, can, waters in, can large bodies of water be separated with long enough and fast enough winds? And so he proved that it could be. And he's got a video. So his name is Carl Drews, if you want to Google it later, please. Carl Drews. And his story was uh, published in the Smithsonian Magazine, okay, published in the Washington Post. His research was peer-reviewed and promoted by government and secular organizations and scientists, and so he's not out in the left field. Um, and he showed that with a fast enough wind over the period of time that they would have had in that overnight, you can actually see that it works. And it's happened in large bodies of water, water, Lake Erie being one of them, in places. Now, it takes a, a unique place, but even identifies this is where it most likely would have occurred. Okay, so what God did, the, the supernatural activity is not necessarily the wind separating the waters. The supernatural activity is the timing. And through a man. I mean, it, it happens very rarely. I think the event in, in with Lake Erie was like in the late 1800s. Um, but what God did is that at his time, through his person Moses, he accomplished something naturally. You see that? It wasn't completely in the realm of the supernatural. The timing of it, okay? Just like Jesus walking, it's just, just like Jesus when he was in the boat, the waves eventually calmed down, and lakes eventually have calm water. Jesus demonstrated his power over nature at that moment. So God is showing that he is indeed supernatural in his ability to control nature and at the time he wants to control it. Again, it doesn't make sense of everything. It's not proving it. It's a possible phenomenon, but, but God chose to do it at a certain time and at a certain place. The second observation is God's stated purposes. He says, and as we've addressed, he wants the Egyptians to know Yahweh. Um, he wants, and this is related in the psalm, in the, excuse me, in the song, which is chapter 15, which we're not going to go through. But one of the things is that God is wanting to show that he is unique among the gods. And that was a purpose that we saw in the nine plagues. This third one, though, 
is one I want to spend a little bit of time on. He says, I will get glory over Pharaoh. He says it twice. I will get glory over Pharaoh. Now, it seems like, okay, you read that, and like, you know, is God, is God feeling insecure? You know, is he, is he wanting to, is he, he's in a contest with Pharaoh. Indeed, he is. And, and, and the problem is, and, and that's, you know, we can maybe think God seems to be this insecure guy. He just wants to show his power. We have plenty of men um, that are examples of that in our own world. Is God like these insecure men? The word for glory here, the, the, the Hebrew idea, it cannot be exactly translated into a single specific English word, but it more so has the idea of of a weightiness or a heaviness. And so what God is saying is that I want Pharaoh and Egypt to feel the weight of me. I want them to feel the weight of the all-powerful God who is truly God and not this guy who thinks he's God. I want them to consider what it means to understand that there is the almighty, eternally existing Yahweh. I want them to take me seriously. Because when humanity doesn't take me seriously, we end up like Egypt. Egypt is the epitome of godlessness. Egypt is the, the opposite of what God wants to do. And so if, 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 a, if a nation goes down the route of godlessness in rejecting Yahweh, a nation becomes oppressive and enslaving, like Egypt. And so what God is wanting is, is, is for the nations to recognize that they are under the authority of the all-powerful God. And as Psalm 2 says, all of the nations are striving to burst off the chains that hold them to God. They are wanting to be independent of God they do not want to acknowledge his authority. And, the, and Psalm 2 says that God laughs in derision because at some point, King Jesus is coming and every, every knee will bow. And the nations cannot forever throw off the weight of Yahweh. Leon Cass says this, it's, it's not that he is insecure and craves recognition, but that being of the greatest weight he wants that weight to be felt, known, and celebrated. The third observation is, I think, a very personal one. It's a challenge of what it means to have faith and what our responsibilities are. This is a challenging spot in the text, and it addresses what does it mean to have a faith if there's not action that follows it. So when it said that Israel feared, they saw, the, they saw the armies, it says they feared greatly, and then they cried out, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? We said just leave us in Egypt. And then Moses, who, who trusts and believes in God, contrary to Israel, um, heard them, you know, they, they blamed God, they blamed Moses. And Moses says, listen, all you need to do is wait and be quiet. We would say, let go and let God. That's, that's what Moses said. And that's why God's response, he says, why are, you, why are you crying out to me? I've given you this staff. You have power. Use it. Why are you waiting for me? And so 
God then gives him instruction. Use your staff that I gave you. Spread it over the waters. He stands between them. And you know the rest of the story. So you see in that three perspectives when faced with trials and challenges. And I think we can all relate with these. The first one is a, is a response that demonstrates no faith. A response that demonstrates no faith, no trust in a higher power that cares for you. What we do is we blame God and we blame the, our authorities. I'm in this bad situation. God, it's your fault. Authorities in my life, it's your fault. I would have been just fine back where I was, which is a lie. But that's what we do. If we face hardships, we blame God and we blame the authorities in our lives because they should have protected us. So that's a, that's if, that's if, that's a non-existent faith. The second option is what I would call a simple or uncritical faith or an unthoughtful faith, the let go and let God. It's, 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 it, there's, there's enough faith to recognize that God is going to care for us and take care of us, but not enough faith that moves us to action. Not enough hope that the future is going to be good, even though the situation now is bad. We're just going to wait and see. Then there's the third option of strong faith where God says, go forward. Have the nation go forward. So we can blame authorities and God. We can just kind of sit back and wait and do nothing and expect God to just do everything. Or we can trust that he's going to fulfill his promises and continue to move forward and make decisions trusting that he has given us power and he has made promises that, that then give us hope to move forward, even though we don't know, we can't answer all the questions, we, we can't answer all the whys and hows, but we do know that God has made promises for our future good. That's hope. Hope springs from faith. Without it, without a solid faith in the promises of God that generate hope, we're immobilized. And what happens when we're immobilized as Christians because we have to live with hope. We have to keep moving forward. When we're immobilized with a, a weak faith and no hope, we go to our old hopes. We go to the old things that gave us power. Or we do nothing, and that grows resentment and bitterness because we just see nothing's happening in my life. Why isn't God doing something? He should be doing something. And anger and resentment grows. Now, as I said at the beginning, the situation in Ukraine is, is relevant. There are, there are Christians demonstrating faith and hope in the midst of an oppressive and enslaving nation. There's a story, I'm sure some of you have read it, and I've, and I've practiced these, these names, but I'm, I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce them. There's a story of this family, the Parabinus family. From Ukraine, it's a husband and a, and a wife and father and mother of, of, of two children. And the father's name is Siri. And Siri went off to uh, help his mother who was living alone in another city to get her to safety. 
and his family was in Kiev. So he left, and during his absence, things were getting worse and worse in Kiev. And so the, the wife, mom, and her two children decided that they were going to flee, not wait for husband and the father to get back. And there was this man named Anatoly Berezini, who was a Christian. And he had, he had secured safety for his family, but then had, had begun making trips back into Kiev to help people get out. And so Anatoly got to Kiev, somehow got connected to this, this wife and her two children, this mother and her two children. And on their way out, they were crossing a bridge and a Russian mortar shell exploded and the fragments killed all four of them. It's a sad story, but it's repeated lots and lots of times in this situation. But you, it, you, know, you ask the question, what prompted Anatoly, he's 26 years old, what prompted this man to return and help? And obviously the New York Times is where I read this article. They're not going to go into a lot of the background of this man's faith. But I, I have to imagine that he was compelled by love and energized by hope and founded on faith. Founded on faith in, in, a, in, a, in a God who sent his son to sacrifice in love for the good of others and whose hope was not in the present kingdom of Ukraine, certainly not in the, in the hope of Russia or even of the United States, but, his, but of a coming kingdom under the King Jesus, where peace and righteousness and freedom reign. Now, most of us aren't facing these kinds of trials, but, but we, are, we are under threat all the time from being enslaved in different ways. We become enslaved to, to bitterness and hatred, sexual immorality, insubordination, pleasure, substance abuse, greed, gluttony, security, laziness. I mean, we can go on and on and on. We all know what we can easily become enslaved to. And really what we see in the story of the book of Exodus is a, it's, it's not a metaphor. It, it, God did save this nation through those means, but we can see in it the same kinds of tendencies that we have in our own souls and spirits and minds. When things get rough, we want to go back or we want to stay still. We don't want to move forward in obedience and become vulnerable to the unknown. We, we get used to being enslaved. We get used to being comfortable, even though it causes some pain. There's something about the known and there's something about what we're familiar with that, that we easily become enslaved to. And, and we seem to be able to, to keep things working until it doesn't, until the things that we're enslaved to start destroying relationships or, or our work or, or our health or our finances. Some way, sin always leads to, to death. And whether we're talking about a situation like these brothers and sisters in Russia and Ukraine are facing, or whether we're talking about our own internal selves, as the, the song of Moses says in chapter 15, God is always our salvation against the oppressor, whatever that oppressor might be, whether it's sins of the flesh or oppressive people in the world, God is always our salvation. 
and, and, and the ultimate victory of God's salvation over, is, is over death. Death has always been a tool of tyrants. I read a, an article this week, and, and, and the threat of nuclear war and, and, and Putin's use of that threat is working to some degree. We don't want to make this any worse because he could use them. His threatening, he, he's using death as a threat. It's always been the greatest oppressor. And tyrants have always used it. So victory over death is the greatest victory. We have. It frees us. It frees us. There's a song by Jason Isbell in the 400 unit. Anybody a fan of Jason Isbell in the 400 unit? Travis put me on him. They got this song called, What If We Were Vampires? Okay, because vampires don't die, right? That they live eternally unless they're stabbed in the heart with a stake or hit by a silver bullet or something. But what if we were vampires? That's the, that's the song. But the idea, the song, is, it's, a, it's a romantic song, and it's envisioning, what if we live forever? What would life be like if we lived forever? I'm like, that's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise of the gospel. So here you have the, the hearts of a very talented musician and his band expressing the hope that God has been promising since he created humanity. The promise to live forever, which creates a freedom and a peace in, in how we live this, this life. And so Jesus established in his victory over death, in his resurrection from the dead, full authority as king of kings. There's no tyrant that can threaten Jesus Christ. His power is greatest, shown here in the story of Exodus, but shown in his resurrection from the dead, uh, completely thwarting the efforts of the, of the Roman Empire and the Jewish rulers. They could not keep him down. That's the king that this young man, Anatoly, lived and died for. But Jesus also then, in his victory over death, became master of our, of our own natures. Master of our own natures. Paul says in, in Romans 6, don't you know that when you became, when you believed in the gospel, you, came, you became a slave to righteousness. The spirit of God that lives in us is enslaved to righteousness. That's what it wants to do. And it has overcome the flesh. So we can't keep blaming others, and we can't keep blaming God. And we just can't keep sitting still because the scriptures say, all heavenly resources have been given to you. And God says to move forward. We need to take action in what God commands us to do, knowing that he's going to save us. He's given us plenty of commands. Jesus said, I want you to keep my commandments, I want you to, and I want you to pray and abide in me. Very few things that Jesus said in the, in, the, in the Gospel of John. Keep my commandments. The problem is we often don't know Jesus' commandments. If we don't know Jesus' commandments, we're not going to know what to do. We've got the resources to do it, but if we don't know what he's told us to do, we're not going to move forward. So we've got to grow in what it means to know Jesus and what he's instructed us to do. And that's the teaching of the New Testament, what we try to really emphasize here as a church. And in doing so, that's when we will experience salvation. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and its relevance to us. God, thank you for your spirit that empowers us to obey and makes us a slave of righteousness against all oppressors. 
God, we pray that you'd continue to be at work. God, we, we ask that you would continue to strengthen your people who are fighting for lives in Ukraine. God, we pray that you would um, bring that war and the death and the destruction to an end. Um, God, we pray that you would help us to fight the, the oppressors in our own life. Uh, that we would not blame you, that we would not sit still, that we would move forward in obedience, trusting in your salvation uh, in, all, in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.